You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin Story Machine podcast, an exclusive limited series exploring diverse aspects of children's literature. Hello and welcome to Story Machine. My name is Janet Smith and I'm the festival's children and families programmer. Story Machine is for everyone with a love of children's books. And in this chapter, we'll be rambling through rural Northumberland in the northeast of England with writer David Almond as we discuss his latest novel, Bone Music. Now, I'm sure David is a writer who's known to many of you out there in the listening world. He's the author of near enough 40 books now, including Kit's Wilderness, My Name is Mina, The Fire Eaters, The Savage, A Song for Ella Gray, Colour of the Sun. He's written picture books as well as novels, plays, songs, opera libretti, and his work has been translated into over 40 languages and he's won a string of major awards all around the world. But his first novel was the one that launched him into this world of children's writing, Skellig. It's definitely been published into many, many languages and it's sold over a million copies in the English language alone. It's become a stage play, a radio play, a movie and an opera. David has said that Skellig opened up a whole new creative world for him. And from that, he's gone on to write the many, many novels that I've met, a few of which I've mentioned, and one of which, Bow Music, we're going to go on and talk about. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Janet. Hi, I'm Grant. Thanks. It's great to see you. Uh, it's good to see you as well. Before we begin our ramble into Northumberland and into this story, where, whereabouts are you in, in the, the actual world? In the actual world at the moment, I'm in Bath. So I'm a uh, I kind of live between Newcastle and Bath at the moment. Mm. With the lockdown, I've mainly been in Bath um, for the last most of the last year. But I still, my home is still Newcastle, Northumberland. Yeah. In fact, I was there just a few days ago, and I'm looking forward to getting back again. <laughs> yeah, so this must be a brilliant time of the year to be in that part of the world, um, and much of that is evoked within the your writing and very much in the latest book, Bone Music. So would you like to tell us a little bit about it, about the story, about the characters, and about, of course, the setting? Yeah, the, the novel focuses on um, Sylvia, who's a 15-year-old lass from Newcastle, and she's an ordinary modern um, girl, young woman, um, who lives a vivid life, who has lots of friends, who reels against the world, who reels against global warming and global heating, and. Um, some of our terrible politicians. Um, but her mum decides to, she wa- her mum wants to go to Northumberland, to rural Northumberland, and wants Sylvia to go with her. Sylvia doesn't want to go. She's, um, she wants to stay with her friends. She wants to stay in the city. And she finds herself in Northumberland with her mum, and she sees at first just a place of emptiness and silence and nothingness. And um, she thinks, what is there here for me? But gradually, gradually, she gets kind of absorbed into Northumberland. She becomes kind of fascinated and enchanted and charmed by what she finds there, especially through the, the agency of a boy she meets called Gabriel. And Gabriel introduces her to 
a kind of whole new world and a whole new area of herself as well. So it's a kind of process of rediscovery for Sylvia. And um, the story is driven by the, the, the flute, the little instrument that is made from a bird bone. And Sylvia and Gabriel together make one of these little instruments, but it's uh, inspired by one that Gabriel himself has. And he he doesn't really know the provenance of the one that he has. But in the story, you give a sense that this is something that's very ancient and very uh, part of the natural world as well as the human world, because obviously a human being has, has made it. And I'm just really intrigued about where that idea came from, because the whole story circles around this, this little instrument. Yeah, it's the bone flute, the, the hollow bone, is a, an amazing thing. Um, they were first, the first ever musical instruments, um, first used thousands and thousands of years ago, and they were made from the bones of beasts, from the bones of birds. Um, and it's just such a great notion that you can take something that's actually been alive, that is now dead, and then change it into something that lives again through music. And it was really influenced by the music of Northumberland, but and also by the uh, the musician Catherine Tickell. And one of her recent albums was actually called Hollowbone. And it kind of called back to a time when people used these instruments as a way of not just of making music, but of actually charming the world, of actually reaching out to animals, to beasts, and reaching out to the spiritual world, and maybe even across to the land of the dead. That, that's a really lovely idea that you play with, I think, not only in this book, actually, but that, that's, that importance of those who have gone before us and our connection with the past and with ancestry, going all the way back to quite ancient times is, you know, something that I think, you know, occurs in, in a song for Ella Gray, My Name is Mina, Skellig, so, so I, I'm intrigued about where, from from your sensibilities, that's coming from. What what is it that attaches you to stories and place and people of the past? I think one of the things that I discovered and kind of experienced more and more is that even every time I write, I feel that I'm I'm writing something now. Of course, and I'm writing for an audience that's alive now, and hopefully, maybe for an audience in the future. But also, I'm really aware that I'm doing something that is at the core of human experience, to actually make stories, to make songs, to make poems, to put words into some kind of order. And realizing more and more that this was one of the things that drew humans together in the very first place. You know, we got into ancient caves in order to, to keep warm, to feed each other, to protect each other, but also to tell each other stories. And that kind of ancient importance of storytelling has become more and more important to me and also its attachment to music you know books are our current way of sort of presenting stories but if we went right back in time stories would be sung they would be danced they would be chanted mm. and the other the other thing that also is intriguing me about this book in particular although I think probably now that I think back to your other writing you play with this idea as well is how you name your characters Sylvia is a, a woman's name, but it comes from Silva, which is the Latin word for forest. And, and yeah, I'm just intrigued about that playing around with that. And Gabriel, that idea of the angel, angel Gabriel, and God gave Gabriel the world 
to look after. And so I'm, I'm wondering how intentional this is that, or, or if it's just something that's living there in your head because these are all stories and myths and, and, and how it plays out as, as you're kind of consciously writing your stories and characters. <laughs> uh, sometimes it just comes kind of automatically and I think, oh, <laughs> look at that name. And uh, it's obviously coming from a, a kind of fund of stuff that's in my head and say, oh, I'll call this character Sylvia. Um, Sylvia was called Sylvia right from the start and probably because of her connections with forests. Um, she's called Sylvia Carr. A car is a place which is turning into a forest, this kind of watery land which is turning into a forest. Gabriel, yeah, it's another angelic thing. <laughs> which, <laughs> and I keep kind of finding myself doing this, Gabriel, yeah, that's my kind of Catholic, my Catholic roots coming through, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was just an amazing thing for me to, for Sylvia to go to Northumberland. I didn't really know she, who she was going to meet. I didn't know she was going to meet a boy called Gabriel, but I knew she'd meet somebody. And um, then here he was playing the music and he kind of appeared. And when she sees Gabriel for the first time, um, it was like I was seeing, after seeing Gabriel for the first time as well. You see, he was coming to me. And it, sometimes stories are like that. You know, you begin to write the story and it, it becomes a place in which characters and experiences come to you. It's not like you're making them happen, but you establish a space in which these things are allowed to happen. It was almost like Gabriel was allowed to come into my story. Sounds balmy, but it's that's how it felt. I think it chimes with uh, conversations I've had with with other writers, and also as you've already said, with musicians and you know, I, you know, presumably artists as well who paint. And within the story, Sylvia's father is quite an important character, although we never actually meet him. He's he's overseas. But he's a photographer, so he himself is also artistic. He's looking at the world, documenting the world, but that you know, with a lens between his experience and and what he's seeing. Could you talk a little bit about the the character of the father and also what it is he does, which I think is a lovely contrast to what Sylvia is experiencing and learning in Northumberland. Yeah, um, her father, um, Donovan Carr is a war photographer. He's a photographer, but his main thing, the one thing he loves more than anything else is to be a war photographer. So he's been in the Middle East, he's been to Syria, he's kind of photographed terrible things. And yes, he looks at the world through the lens and, um, and he sees terrible things in the world. And uh, one of the issues in the book is that, I think Sylvia's mother said, he, he just sees the bad things in the world. That's what he's driven to see. So he's driven to, to create, but the things that he's creating are to do with kind of great destruction. Sylvia's experience is the kind of opposite of that. She sees the world through through her body, through her mind, through her soul, and she is kind of absorbed into the world without any any kind of arbitration. She kind of becomes the forest, but her father is distanced from the world because because of the lens. So he has a very jaundiced view of what is possible in the world. And I think Sylvia is a kind of a demonstration that actually there are new ways of experiencing the world even though the world is pretty horrible there are new ways of experiencing the world to understand that the world is actually a miraculous place mm. and that plays out in your writing in other novels as well when I think about the fire eaters as you know, that's the one that comes to my mind in the most prominent way and this idea of a catastrophic war that almost happens that could just have 
destroy the entire world, but everything is seen through the eyes of a young boy who loves where he lives and, you know, he's beside the sea. And, and so again, you play around with that idea of the horror of human destruction versus the beauty of landscape and, you know, the, the love of family and friendship. Yeah. And I think uh, as in the fire eaters, it's like young people who come through and they see the world anew. Is it Louise Glick has this wonderful line, she said, we see the world once in childhood, the rest is memory. And um, it's like, I think in my books, in the fire readers and in bone music, young people are growing into the world and the adults, some of the adults have become tainted by the world, see a horrible world. But these young children are coming through saying, no, this is wonderful. And again, another poet, Ted Hughes, has a wonderful line. He says, every new child is nature's chance to correct culture's error. And I think Sylvia and Bobby and the Fire Readers are examples of that. They are coming again. They're saying, look, this is a marvelous world. Let's kind of sustain this world. Let's love this world instead of kind of heading towards destruction. Mm. I think at this point, it would be nice to hear a little reading from Bone Music and to get a yeah. sense of everything that we've been talking about. So would you like to, to read a little bit for us? Yeah, shall I read the bit where Sylvia's in the forest? Um, mm. Yeah, so this is where, because there's a lot about rewilding in the book and uh, Sylvia kind of travels, meets a person like herself, but who comes from thousands and thousands of years ago in the forest, in Kielder Forest, and Sylvia herself is rewilded. And I think that's a notion in the book which is really important, that um, it's very well rewilding the world, but what we have to do is to rewild ourselves, rewild our minds, and set ourselves a different kind of, become different kind of beings. So I'll read a bit from when she's lying in the forest, um, and she enters a kind of dream, and she's with a girl from the past, and then this happens. Everything was new. Everything had changed. How will I get back, she wondered to herself. The girl touched Sylvia's cheek, and Sylvia fell and ended her dream. She lay by the rock by the great tree with her arms outstretched, like the buzzard, the totem poles, the dangling Christ. The girl in the shift in the seashell necklace sat calmly in the moonlight at her side. Did Sylvia sleep or did she die? Like the totem poles and the buzzard, she changed. She began to turn to earth. Her flesh and her bones decayed. Spiders and beetles crawled over her. Worms slid through her. Maggots fed on her. Moisture seeped up from the ground. Dew seeped down from the air. The earth took her to itself. Rain fell on her. Breezes blew across her. Winds came and storms and torrential rain and snow and sleet and frost and ice. There were times of bright sunshine and baking heat, and the earth turned and kept on turning, and time passed and kept on passing, and the girl faded, and other girls and other folk passed by, and some lingered close to her, and lichen, flowers, moss, and ferns grew on her, bees buzzed over her, adders crawled across her, rabbits burrowed in her, badgers dug down through her, shrubs and trees grew from her, and birds made nests in their branches and sang above her. And all these things fed on her and took nourishment from her. And so she became these things. So she's becoming 
she's not Sylvia, she's becoming the world, and then she comes out of this dream and enters the world again as a kind of renewed <laughs> and renewed Sylvia. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a such a powerful turning point, I think, in in the book as well um, for the reader, because that's the the kind of the culmination of. Uh, the journey that we've been on as well with Sylvia as as we kind of see the 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 landscape through her eyes and you know the the first part until we until we reach that point Sylvia's eyes have been on the horizon at the glow of Newcastle lights yeah. in the distance and then yeah. her eye her eyes come come away from the horizon and become much more yeah. focused to yeah. what's around yeah. her it's such a, yeah. a beautiful point in the story yeah and at each point in the novel, you know, Sylvia moves through the novel and there are several moments when she's almost like presented with a choice. She can either see this or she can't see it. She can go to this or she can not go to it. And each time she's kind of brave enough to say, gosh, I can see that. Yes, I do feel that. Yes, I am going to do that. And each time she moves deeper and deeper into, into what the novel is, is about. Yeah. Mm. And deeper into herself as well. She's kind of, as she's exploring the forest, she's also exploring the forest in herself, the kind of the great vast background to herself and to all of us. Yeah. And she will say that aloud as well, that you know, she is Sylvia Carr. You know, she has power and agency and she can make decisions for herself and it's it's a very beautiful evocation of being a young person and and that kind of turning point that I think we do have and we probably all have that memory of that point when you realize you are in control of your life if if you if you're brave enough to seize the opportunities that that come yeah yeah it is about being brave a lot, isn't it? You know, it takes a lot of courage to grow up. It takes a lot of courage to, to be alive in the world. And uh, we're always presented with, can I do that? Can I do that? And each time, important points in our lives, we have to say, oh, yes, I can yeah. do that. And kind of be, being bold enough to step forward into yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about how you write, because for me, reading your novels and particularly this one it's almost like reading a kind of narrative poem at points uh you pair your language right back there's never a word that I feel is unnecessary or overly descriptive it's as if you strip away language and and we're left almost with raw feeling a lot of the time in the writing and I'm just I'm just curious about that process of writing that you go through. Do you start with quite detailed drafts and go back and, and take away the words? Or you know, how does it work? And I look at the layout of the words on the page and, it, and they sit like a poem as well. And yeah, I'm just really curious about what that process is like for you. I, I begin with notebooks. So I spend a lot of time with notebooks, big empty page notebooks, blank pages and um and I scribble and I draw and I kind of draw the scenes, draw the places where I'm going to be writing about. So for bone music, I drew bits of forest and kind of had people walking through them and uh, then threw in bits of dialogue, threw in bits of, um, bits of narrative. And then when I begin to kind of work it through on the computer, I rewrite, I rewrite, I rewrite, I'm constantly rewriting. And yeah, I do try and kind of pare it down into to something that feels kind of rhythmical. I read the work aloud and more and more I kind of present it on the page at times as if it is poetry or as if it is song 
and then I'll sort of open it out again. So the bit, the bit that I just read from the forest is a block of solid text. And I'm really interested in how words look on the page and how they reflect, how they, they might be read and how they might echo in the mind of the reader. But yeah, I'm very painstaking about every word. I try and make sure that each word kind of earns its place. And it's not a kind of heavy thing. It's a, quite a light thing. You're kind of searching for some kind of beauty. And it's like, not that it's airy-fairy, beautiful, rosy-posy, but it's like even the darkest things can be very beautiful when they're kind of written in the right way. So that's what I'm kind of searching for, I guess. Yeah. As a reader, um, I mean, I guess for me, I'm quite close to your books in that I, I think I've pretty much read everything you've written. Um, but I always feel when I read your books that I'm not just reading them in my head, but I'm kind of reading them in in just below my diaphragm, that's where your books sit for me, <laughs> which is, is, you know, it's quite hard to explain. But I think because of the way you use language and, you know, the clarity of the words to describe the feelings and the sense, as well as the story and character, I think that's why, that's where, for me, reading the books, they, they, they sit. And I'm now curious as well, from the way you described Gabriel appearing to you where all your characters go when a book is published and you're in festival settings or in schools or libraries talking about those stories where are all these characters are they part of you now are they just behind you do any of them still talk to you how how does that work I guess they must still be around me. They must be still inside there somewhere. But also they're out there. So maybe one of the reasons to write is to move them out of my mind and into the world. So you set them, set them free. So off they go, like Sylvia's now out in the world. And Gabriel is too. But then some characters do kind of remain and kind of keep wanting to come back. It's like in Skellig, Mina always wanted to come back. And Mina still wants to come back. So I'll still be writing stuff about Mina, I think, for the next 20 years or so. Um, and there are certain characters from books in the past that I know I've got to write them. I've got to write them again. And so there's a boy called January Carr from a book called Heaven Eyes. And I know January is kind of waiting for his moment to come back again <laughs> and appear in a book. Because um, they, do, they do take on such a life. And they, can, they kind of exist in me as kind of characters in me, as well as, as in my books. Yeah, Some of them, I guess, must disappear. But some of them hang around and want want more attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine Mina wanting attention. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I think she is one of my favourite book characters. And yeah. thinking about Mina, um, she also is a, you know, a lover of nature and um, you know, is fascinated by birds and you know the the, the kind of the natural world. Um, and I'm just interested as well in that idea of the the bird as a motif so it starts out very much in Skellig um my name is Mina and here we are again with um the bone and the flute mm. coming from mm. you know a dead bird and and what it is that for you is that connection between birds and stories and you know the the, the kind of yeah, using them, I suppose, as a as a kind of metaphor, a motif throughout your writing. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing that we live in a, a world that has birds in it. You know, birds are such <laughs> phenomenal 
strange, miraculous creatures and um, and that the kind of physicality of the bird has always been really important to me in my work. And it's interesting, when I was writing um, bone music, when they, they get the buzzard, the buzzard which is going to provide the bone, which will give Sylvia her hollow bone, what strikes Sylvia is that it, its skeleton is very much like our skeleton. And when they take, when they separate the wing, when they go into the wing, that the shape of the wing, the bones in the wing are the same as the bones in, in the human arms. Um, so that kind of deep physical connection between birds and humans. And also, of course, the, you know, how many poems, how many songs have been written about birds in human history. Um, they stand for all kinds of things, freedom, flights, the spirit, the yearning for something higher. Um, and ever since the beginning of human time, we've been writing stories or presenting images of, of creatures like us, but which have birds, uh, wings like birds. It's that kind of profound connection, which is just for me, such a rich kind of source of imagery and material and constant kind of wonder. Mm. And earlier on in this chat, you quoted Ted Hughes, who wrote a lot of poetry about the natural world and about birds. So I'm wondering who else is an inspiration to your writing or, or what else is an inspiration for you as a writer? Um, yeah, loads of writers, you know, like Ted Hughes or Marquez or Raymond Carver, but also music has been a massive influence on me and especially a massive influence on bone music is, uh, was uh, my work with Catherine Tickell, Catherine Tickell, the Northumbrian Piper. And Catherine and I, we made a stage show and toured it a few years ago. And um, that was wonderful to work with musicians and to, to talk about the connections between words and music and, um, and to see musicians performing I thought, in a sense, that's what we're all trying to do, that actually when we write words on a page, we're doing the same thing as a musician does. It's just that we don't actually see the audience the way that a musician... And when I was on stage with Catherine, I remember looking down at the audience and saying, the audience for music, the audience for art, the audience for books, it's the same audience. And what they're doing is they're opening themselves to you and they're saying, just do it to me. <laughs> you know? Please me, overwhelm me, enchant me, charm me. And, um, and I say it most of all in music. So that's been a massive influence, yeah. And so during lockdown, how did you sustain yourself? Were you listening to music? Were you reading? Were you having your daily constitutional walk into nature? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of daily constitutional walks. In fact, I just had one this afternoon in the rain. It's pouring here. <laughs> First time for ages having the walks and seeing the world and seeing a kind of limited part of the world. It's been really interesting seeing a limited part of the world, but seeing it day by day by day by day and seeing the constant changes and the, the wonderful growth and to listen to, of course, all the bird song. Um, yeah, lots of reading. A lot there were times when I just, the thing that people have said about concentration during lockdown was often very difficult. The same happened with writing as well. There were times when I just couldn't concentrate. And, and some people would imagine it's great. Lockdown is great for writers because you know, you're just, you're there, that's what you want. But actually, <laughs> a good thing about writing is you spend a lot of time writing, but then you can go away from it for a while. You know, you, I don't know, go go out, go to town, go to the pub, go to a restaurant, and then you come back again. But during lockdown, it's always there. <laughs> you only get, you know, you only get 50 yards away from it, you come back, it's still in the same place. But that's okay. But I've finished, almost finished a book during lockdown. Watching telly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
it's 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 been a really interesting time and because i've been living mainly in the southwest um which i've never spent so much time away from the northeast before writing about the northeast from somewhere so far away has given me a kind of new perspective on how to write about the north so it's that's been fascinating as well that's kind of i suppose leading to my next question because i always think of you as a writer synonymous with the northeast of England and certainly when I read your books I I hear your accent in a, in the the words which is is strange because it's it's not something that happens very regularly uh, for me there's some some other writers who perhaps evoke say uh, the Scots language which obviously for me is familiar and so I can hear that when when I read uh, some other writers work but um, it's really strong with you and that idea then that during lockdown even though you weren't in the northeast but you were able to write about it are you able to give us any hints on what the next book is or when we're likely to be able to read it um, I'm finishing a book at the moment, which is, um, it's really hard to talk about the book I'm writing. <laughs> it's really hard. You don't have to. In fact, it's almost, it's, really, it's almost simple, but there will be one. Uh, I'm trying to think. One of the, actually, one of the things I did write, which I'm really pleased about, which may, some of it may turn into songs, is I wrote a piece called Sing in the North, which was about writing about the North from almost like a place of exile. And it was exploring the language because, as you say, my books are written in the language of the Northeast. And one, and I gained a lot of courage to do that from thinking about Scottish writers when I was kind of getting started wondering, how can I be Northern? How can I write Northern? So people like James Kelman or Alistair Gray were really important to me in their kind of sense of we are Scottish, we're going to write in the Scottish language. I write in the Northern language. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is that I've taken a language which some people would say, would have said is, oh, it's uncultured. How can you possibly write anything in that kind of language? Um, I've taken the Northern language and said, yes, this, this is it. So yeah, um, yes, I write in a Northern voice and I'm really proud of that. And it was interesting that I, you know, as a writer, you can kind of, people talk about finding your voice and some people kind of try and find the voice somewhere far away from where they began. My voice comes from the kind of bones, my own bones and from my own past, my own background, the people that are here all around me. So the North is in my books. Yeah. That's lovely. Uh, and certainly now I'm intrigued about what the next book might be. Um, it is, I'll tell you, it's, it's called Puppet. It's called Puppet. It's about, uh, I can't speak a little, it's about a puppet master who creates, who's getting towards the end of his puppetry career. And, um, he wants to make one last puppet. Yeah. Wow. So very, very different to uh, what we've um, been been reading about in bone music. Um, Quite different, yeah. But it does have similarities. One of the things that's similar is the use of the the physicality of something, the physicality of a living thing. What is the physicality of a living thing? Uh, well, that's uh, appropriate because although the listeners can't see this, my cat <laughs> is currently. 
between me and uh, my screen. So I, I can no longer see David. Oh, the cat is now moving out of the way. If anyone, if anyone has a slow radio moment and hears purring down the microphone, then yeah, that's my, my big old boy cat. Uh, he shifted yeah. out of the way. Uh, on, <laughs> on that slight uh, kind of intrusion, we're going to have to call this podcast to an end, David. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, as always. And for those of you out there listening, Bone Music is available to buy from our online bookseller, Gutter Books. So just follow the links from the ILF Dublin website to the bookshop. In our next chapter, Dr. Poreg White and his MPhil students in children's literature at Trinity College Dublin are going to be taking you all on a ramble through the urban jungle, exploring cities, both real and imagined in the world of children's writing. Thanks to our sponsors, because the International Literature Festival Dublin is an initiative of Dublin City Council, kindly supported by the Arts Council. Thanks to you for listening. And thank you to David Almond for his conversation today. Thanks very much, Janet. I really enjoyed that. Thanks a lot. Thank you. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council Ireland. To learn more, visit www.ilfdublin.com.